And that's the thing is like I, I it was a mixture of again, you know, you're looking at the main character who's possessed by demons, looking at all kinds of horrifying. So you're not paying attention to the priest who's not actually old. And the funny thing about this was he couldn't get work after the exorcist. You would think the exorcist, a huge success. You would have no problem getting a job, but he couldn't get a job because when he would send his headshots, he was sending his actual headshots, which is of a 40 year old man. Oh, yeah, I remember. And, and again, I don't know that. if he's 40, if he was exactly 40, but he was in his 40s, but he couldn't get work because they're like, uh, can you send us some more updated, you know, we're looking for, you, you know, your actual age because we know that you're <laughs> older. And he's like, look, guys, I'm actually only in my 40s, so I'm not actually that old. But it's that's how good Dick Smith's makeup was that people didn't believe that this guy was a young man. Crazy. Please listen carefully. Hello and welcome to the Film Revere Podcast, this week brought to you by Audible. I'm Zach. I'm Katie. Our guest for today's episode is film and television composer Anne Nicotin. I would also like to give the listeners a quick Film Revered update before the show starts. Last week I mentioned a new video version of the podcast that would be airing on YouTube. Unfortunately, due to time restraints, we will be keeping the format displayed in the first four episodes moving forward. Perhaps down the road, we will expand into a fully fledged out video version of the show. But for now, we will be remaining audio only. And with that, let's get into some industry news. Let's do it. So Sons of Anarchy spinoff Mayans MC is officially in full swing. FX announced Friday that it has handed out a 10-episode series order to Mayans MC, Kurt Sutter's follow-up to the FX long-running biker drama Sons of Anarchy. The series will premiere in 2018, either in late fall or this summer, and it's pegged to release among the 10th anniversary of Sons of Anarchy. Uh, the actual show itself is set in a post-Jax Teller world, where the main character, Easy Reyes, who's played by J.D. Pardo, uh, is fresh out of prison, and he is a prospect in the Mayan MC charter on the Cali-Mexico border. Now, Easy must carve out his new outlaw identity in a town where he once was a golden boy who had the American dream within his grasp. It also stars Edward James Almo, Sarah Bulger, Clayton Cardenas, uh, Richard Carbrell, uh, Michael Irby, Raul Trulio, uh, let's see, Antonio Jeremio, and Carla Barada. Uh, to round out the cast so it looks pretty cool and Sutter has been releasing set photos on his Instagram which I believe is Sutter Inc so definitely check that out we'll leave a link in the link dump but it looks really freaking awesome I'm actually really excited did you ever see Sons of Anarchy Katie I haven't seen it but uh that's crazy 10 years after the show I remember was it ongoing when you were first watching it because I remember in school that was like your show and you would talk about it a lot yeah, I think I even had a Reaper crew hat at one point, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, it was a really good show. It went on for a long time, I believe seven or eight seasons. I can't remember exactly, um, but it, yeah, it was on for a while. So even though it technically was 10 years ago when it first premiered, the show's actually only been off the air for four years, but even oh, still, okay. it's been some time, but Sutter's also like done some other shows. He did The Bastard Executioner, which is also on FX, which is kind of like a medieval Sons of Anarchy, which is very much belittling that show to a degree because it was very much more like medieval than it was like, you know, that. But it was cool because you had like this outlaw group of bandits, Robin Hood style, like on horses instead of motorcycles. Oh, wow. Um, but it was cool. Unfortunately, it got canceled after its first season, though. So so do you think they'll bring back any of the original cast or it's going to be a completely so, different story? Well, and again, not if you have I don't want to like give too much information away as this is going to tail into my what to watch at the end of the show. But um, this is after Jax Teller's story has been told. So it takes oh, okay. place after Sons of Anarchy ended. So essentially it's basically just picking up four years after the events of Sons of Anarchy, much in, like the actual show gotcha. ending. So, but there will, there have mentioned that some of the characters, um, will be returning but it'll be minor cameos and stuff like that because obviously mine's mc interact was friendly like they were more of an ally motorcycle club to sons of anarchy towards the end of the series mm. again spoilers but again the show's <laughs> been out for as we mentioned started 10 years ago so 
What else is going on in the news? Um, we got Tarantino is going to be directing a new movie about Charles Manson from the late 60s and 70s. Um, and the, it was announced that Leonardo DiCaprio is going to star in it. He's not going to be Manson himself, but apparently he's going to play an aging, out-of-work actor. So there's not a lot of news about it, and I know we were talking about this before the show, trying to figure out like who he's going to be in kind of um, the Manson story. If you don't know who Charles Manson is, he was a cult leader in the like late 60s, early 70s, who was responsible for a bunch of deaths. The Manson family, if you've heard that term, he, like, recruited a bunch of, like, young, out-of-place hippies that didn't know what they wanted to do and pretty much hypnotized them into, like, killing people. (laughs) That's the best description I can give. Yeah, that is something that a lot of people who have met Manson uh, would say, is the fact that he had kind of like a... It was a sense of charm or something that really kind of cast a spell on anyone who talked to him, which is kind of crazy when you see photos of him now. I mean, obviously, he's now deceased, actually, mm-hmm. recently. I believe this year or last year. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he looks like a crazy person. But back then, you know, he was kind of like this, you know, as the rock and roll era, you know, Woodstock and everything like that. And he kind of had like that cool vibe about him where you're just like, he was... Women wanted to be with him and men wanted to be him kind of feeling, you know? Yeah, well, he spent all his life pretty much in prison and he kind of learned the system. And he even said himself he was more comfortable living in prison than in the outside world. And that he learned, like, how to be, how to manipulate people, basically, like mentally, emotionally. So, yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, and getting back to, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, like you had mentioned earlier, that we were trying to figure it out. I think, and I'll I'll, I'll take the blame for this if I'm wrong, Katie, but <laughs> I do feel that Cap- DiCaprio might be playing um, Roman Polanski. Now, again, I believe you had mentioned this too, is that Tarantino isn't necessarily following the Manson story 100%. So yeah. he may just be based off of Roman Polanski. Yeah. So it may just be a it's different... It's not really clear. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to take... I mean, it's called, I think the film's going to be called Manson, so it's going to be about the time era and what was going on. Um, But they also did say that Margot Robbie, um, she was uh, Harley Quinn in Suicide Squad. She is being eyed for the role of Sharon Tate, which is um, Okay, well then that has to be Roman Polanski at that point. Yeah, Yeah. So, and it would make sense given the time frame. Obviously, more people think of Roman Polanski as an older director now. Also, Martin, a lot of controversy after the fact of everything else that happened. But, um, yeah, I mean, back then, though, he would be about the age of, a, let's say, an aging actor because he was more known for acting up until his release of Rosemary's Baby in 1968, which was a year before all this incident took place with his wife and Manson. So, yeah, it kind of makes sense. But anyway, the movie is set to come out. Already has a date, I guess, August 9th, which is actually the 50th anniversary of the day that the Manson family committed the murders, um, the day after uh, Sharon Tate was killed. So that's, that's a little August insensitive. August this year or next year? Uh, 2019, yeah, that's next year. Okay, I was like, oh my god, this is so quick. <laughs> yeah, it is a little insensitive, isn't it? I mean, given the date and everything. It depends how they handle the story, but um, yeah, I think it'd be interesting. Um, yeah, moving on to some TV stuff here. Robert Kirkman, the creator of the Walking Dead comic series, and spoilers real quick, I'm going to say that again. Spoilers! If you've not seen the first half of Season 8, do not listen to the next two minutes of this show. And what you can do is kind of scrub through, and I'll say you can listen now. That's how you'll know I'm done. Uh, I just don't want to spoil it for people. I hate spoilers myself, so... But... Anyways, you've been warned. So he is defending the killing of Carl on the show. Now, uh, as most fans know, there were a lot of people that were outraged when Carl was bitten by a zombie, myself included. And that obviously signals his impending demise, which will more than likely play out in February 25th, mid-season premiere of season eight. Uh, Kirkman mentioned a variety how it came up and his initial thoughts on the matter. He said, I think Scott's first brought it up to me as a possibility probably about a year ago at this point. At first, I was kind of like, well, that's a big one, you know. I might have had a little bit of trepidation, but once he laid it out to me exactly what the long-term plans were and the things to come out from it, 
uh, and the things it was going to lead to, it was something I got on board with. In response to the fan outrage, Kurt Wentz said the following, I know that some fans online have been very upset, but that's by design. We're not supposed to be happy when these characters die. We're supposed to be worried about what comes next and anticipating what comes next and stressing about what comes next. That just shows that you are engaged and you're interested. Our job is now to pay that off and fulfill that interest and prove that this was a decision worth making. That's what we've got to do. So it definitely puts a lot of pressure on them because now they got to back it up. It's like, if you're going to do something like this, it's going to piss a lot of people off. You better back it up. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it sounds like he's kind of telling people to look at the bigger picture of the whole show. Um, mm-hmm. But that's hard when you get attached to characters like these. And Carl was such... We saw him grow up, literally, and, you know, from the beginning of the show, so... I imagine for Andrew Lincoln, who plays Rick Grimes, which is Carl's father, it was a bit of a shock to him because I'm sure in his mind he was like, this is eventually going to be passing the reins to Carl Grimes. You know what I mean? And that's kind of not the feeling 100% in the comics, but again, these he's the comic book creator... You know, Robert Kirkman's a comic book creator. So these are based off of existing material that's well far ahead from the show. And Carl isn't dead in the comics. Right. Now, that's not the first time that's happened. So if you look at a character like Carol, she actually kills herself in a way with suicide by zombie. Yeah. um, In the comics during the prison era. Yeah, when they were in the prison season three. Yeah. So the fact that she's still on the show and she's such an amazing character. Again, this is not a new thing. This happens all the time. It keeps it fresh for comic book fans. But when you kill someone that people really like in the I would say most people like Carl Grimes in the comics, maybe not so much in the show, but I still think he's great in the show. I mean, some of my favorite scenes are with Carl Grimes. So and again, he's meant to be playing that angsty teen. So, you know, older you know, people may not relate to that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I just remember the season where he was... I've, I'm behind on the show, but I remember this season of him at Herschel's farmhouse. And it was just every time, like, it was a meme. Like, Carl, stay in the house! Like, yeah. <laughs> always getting into trouble. But that's, you know, part of what makes you love characters, too, sometimes. So. Yeah, well, and then he finally got to explore, and he starts taking charge a little bit more. And I don't know, we'll see how that pans out. But I still think the show is going to do well. And kind of keeping within the Walking Dead vein here, Walking Dead has actually been renewed. So AMC announced on Saturday that The Walking Dead would be renewed for a ninth season. And also another big thing is co-executive producer Angela Kang is being promoted to the showrunner for season nine. Now, again, I'm not sure if this is due to the backlash that Scott M. Gimple, the previous showrunner, received for, and again, spoilers, and I didn't say come back, and that's probably a reason for that because we're still talking about it, um, for Carl's death. So I don't know if that's in relation to that. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's probably a, a lot of different things. I don't, <laughs> I don't. That was a huge upset, though, so... Yeah, and I'm gonna now say you can you can listen now. This is the time where you can spoiler free now. At this point, we're moving on. We're still talking about Walking Dead, but I just want for those listeners that may have tuned out so they didn't get anything spoiled for them. You are free to listen now. Another reason that they may have made this decision was the you know to gain some viewers, given the fact that Walking Dead has seen a marked decrease in audience. I know that their season finale last year was about 17 million viewers and now again keep in mind that's a season finale what we're talking about now is a mid-season finale but still it only brought in about eight million viewers which keeping in mind is still a very high number of an audience for live viewing compared to other shows but for walking dead it is down Hmm. so on average walking dead doesn't really go below 11 million viewers throughout the entire season which is crazy considering that there's 16 episodes each season yeah so Again, we talked about this before on the show with piracy being a massive issue and Walking Dead being number two on the most pirated shows. Yeah, so that could be explaining that as well. Yeah. Also getting back to Angela King, she has been a writer on the show for going on seven years. So she's definitely more than qualified to take the reins as far as where this show is going to go and what direction it's going to go. So For sure, she's been around. Yeah, she's been around the block. That <laughs> sounded bad. Yeah, it's not what I... Yeah, anyways, she's she's been around. She's been hanging out. With the zombies. Um, 
Yeah, with zombies in the bushes, all that fun stuff. Uh, Gimple didn't get fired, though. I do want to make that very clear in me saying that there's a new showrunner. He's been replaced. There's a difference. Uh, Gimple will now be the chief content officer. So he is going to oversee the Walking Dead TV franchise, including the companion series Fear the Walking Dead and future brand extensions. So he's just in a more overall Okay, you know, different uh, position. leadership position. Yeah, but he's not actually leading the charge as far as the actual show itself, The Walking Dead. So, yeah, so he got a promotion and we got a new person that also got promoted into being the new showrunner. So season nine could be different. I'm curious to see. I, I kind of want to go in and see, do some research and see what exact episodes Angela King's responsible for just to kind of get an idea of like what her writing style is and potentially where the show might go. I think there might be some information in there. Getting out of TV and going for a real quick one here. DC. Wow. Let me redo that. DC. Freaking shout like an old man over here. DC Shazam has gotten a 2019 release date. Warner Brothers DC Entertainment superhero movie Shazam has been set for an April 19th, 2019 release date. The film stars Zachary Levi, who plays a titular superhero, and Asher Angel, who plays Billy Batson, a young boy who turns into Shazam when he utters the name. It star Jack Dylan Grazer will play Freddy, Billy Batson's best friend. You also have Grace Fulton, uh, who has been in negotiations to star as one of Batson's friends. And Mark Strong has been rumored to be attached as the villain, which I think would be great. I freaking love Mark Strong as an actor. I think he's terrific, so it would be great to see him in a villain role. Mm, so Shazam is the the actor from Chuck, right? Yeah. And the guy, yeah, and- he was the voice uh, in Rapunzel. He was the... Yep. I uh, was a Tangled, yeah. The, uh, show, tangled. the movie yeah, yeah, Tangled, yeah. yeah. That's what I meant. Based off of Rapunzel, you the know. same thing. Yeah, I love him. He's funny. Yeah, he was also in the Psych movie, which we talked about <clears throat> last week. Mm. Uh, he played one of the main villains. So A villain? But, That's interesting. Yeah, he, he was interesting. His nickname in the show was Bottle Blonde. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. Well, that's cool. DC's coming back with some, some superhero fend off marvel yeah, a little bit some, yeah a little bit so we'll see how that goes 2009 though all these release dates i feel like it's so far away we like just started 2018 yeah 2019 yeah it'll be an interesting year for sure i'm very curious to see what happens and again we're yeah like you said we're just at the beginning so god knows what else is going to get announced it's going to be coming out in 2019 yeah and we started off the year with the golden globes moving on oh did we was that your nice segue <laughs> that was, yeah was it you like so that smooth? transition my god hey, you ruined so it good. by pointing it out I, yeah shit sorry it was such a good segue though <sighs> i'm trying here i but... wanted to give you the credit <laughs> thanks i appreciate it but uh yeah so we'll i'm not going to read out the full list because I mean, it's it's not like it was today. It happened a few days ago. But um, we'll leave a full list of the category winners in the link dump. Um, the top winners were three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, and Lady Bird. And Del Toro took uh, home a huge win with Shape of Water for his monster movie. Um, he's very excited about that. He was quoted in his speech saying, Since childhood, I've been faithful to monsters. I have been saved and absolved by them. Because of monsters, I believe, are patron saints of our blissful imperfection. Um, So this was a huge win for, like, just the monster category in general. Um, The only other major category win for anything resembling a monster movie uh, at the Globes was The Exorcist in 1974 for Best Picture, Best Director. Yeah. So it's been a while, and it was funny, the music started to cut him off during his speech, and he was like, hey, hey, like, let, let me talk, it's been, it's been a long time coming, he was like, it's been 25 years, like, let me talk, and they, like... Did they let him talk? They did, they, like, they quieted the man, music a little bit. he should have been there with rhythm, and he was at the Oscars, man, be like, <laughs> you, I, I will save my Well, life. when Del Toro tells you to turn down yeah, the music... it is a little different. So it's cool because um, if you didn't know, before he was directing, he actually got his start in the industry working as a makeup artist, um, being inspired by The Exorcist. He said he learned um, makeup and effects from Dick Smith um, on The Exorcist. And then he started to, you know, produce and work on his own films. 
Ah, oh, Dick Smith, man. Let me tell you real quick. I, you know, we're talking about makeup effects. We're talking about monsters. But something a lot of people don't realize is that he's also known for his old age makeup he did on the, the priest in The Exorcist. And this is kind of an interesting point because... That movie, most people were focused on uh, Linda Blair, you know, like the girl. Mm -hmm. you know, they wanted to, they're like, oh man, like, you know, she's horrifying looking, so scary. But the actor himself, right, that played the father, which was played by Max von Sydow, he was in his 40s. Yeah, when... I remember, that's a huge, it was a huge thing for special exact... effects, amazing. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, I, I it was a mixture of, again, you know, you're looking at the main character who's possessed by demons, looking at all kinds of horrifying. So you're not paying attention to the priest who's not actually old. And the funny thing about this was he couldn't get work after The Exorcist. You would think The Exorcist, a huge success. You would have no problem getting a job, but he couldn't get a job because when he would send his headshots, he was sending his actual headshots, which is of a 40 year old man. Oh, yeah, I remember. And, and again, I don't know that. if he's 40, if he was exactly 40, but he was in his 40s, but he couldn't get work because they're like, uh, can you send us some more updated, you know, we're looking for, you, you know, your actual age because we know that you're <laughs> older. And he's like, look, guys, I'm actually only in my 40s, so I'm not actually that old. But it's that's how good Dick Smith's makeup was, that people didn't believe that this guy was a young man. Crazy. Um. What else we got? We got Sterling K. Brown of This Is Us. He was the first black man to win the award for best performance by an actor in a TV series drama. And Azia Ansari, is that how you say his name? Aziz Ansari, yeah. Oh, there you go. That was nice. Um, he was the first Asian actor to win a Golden Globe for best actor in a TV comedy category for his role in his show um, Master of None. So just in general, a lot of women were wearing... Uh, black dresses to symbolize um survivors of sexual harassment pay tribute to that and the many wore times up pins which is just like you know the time it symbolizes like time is up time for women to stand up and men to listen and so it's pretty empowering yeah definitely i mean obviously we've come into a new era but i think it's time to get into some trailer drums yeah we don't have sound yeah. yet Wah, 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 wah. We don't, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wah, wah, wah. Trailer drops. <laughs> dun, dun. AMC released the Terror's official trailer. So Ridley Scott's A Terror released an official season one trailer on Saturday. The plot revolves around a Royal Naval Expedition crew searching for the Arctic's treacherous Northwest Passage and discovers instead a monstrous predator. Um, as for the actual trailer itself, I love the overall feel of the show. Um, that was presented in the trailer. There is a feeling of dread and a lack of morale going on, which is only heightened by the loss of crew members due to this massive and likely undiscovered creature hunting them. It's very paranormal in a sense. It does like they mentioned they find a print in the trailer and they're like, it was 25 inches, you know, wide. And that seems not that big, but then it literally cuts to a man running past the footprints and you see him scaled to the actual print. You're like, that's a big beast. I don't think that's a bear. Um, so I'm kind of curious to see where that goes. The production value seems that of an HBO series, even though this is on AMC. Uh, it looks really well done. Oh, yeah. Jared Harris's character has a particularly eerie line in the trailer. It says, as a trusted friend once said, this place wants us dead. Ooh. So, I don't know. I mean, did you see the trailer, Katie? Yeah, it, it's very... I Again, we've been talking about uh, series recently that kind of look like movies. Like, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's really cinematic. Um, and like you said, dark, kind of like monster movie. You know, we're just talking about monster movies. Like, Yeah, and I think it's interesting that it's from Ridley Scott because obviously he's known with Alien. And not that this is like Alien in this you know in the north pa north arctic passage here it's not what we're saying but you know you definitely get that vibe of like one creature out to take on an entire crew but it's cool i mean it's a period piece obviously this takes place in like the 1800s so and i think also the game of thrones vibe is there because you know the whole white walkers and all the frozen kind of feeling and this is you know in a frozen i mean basically these ships get locked in ice mm -hmm. you know like they can't move forward 
So something I do want to touch on, though, and this is kind of going off the rails here for the trailer, but it's just getting into the backstory of the show. And this is partly why I'm super pumped for this. Um, and again, this is an actual show. It's not going to be a miniseries. Um, it's based on true events that took place in the mid 1800s. So the true story involved a British voyage of Arctic exploration led by Captain Sir John Franklin that departed England in 1845 aboard two ships, the HMS Erubus and the HMS Terror, hence the show The Terror. Uh, they were meant to traverse the last unnavigated section of the Northwest Passage. After a few early fatalities, the two ships became icebound in the Victoria Strait near King William Island in the Canadian Arctic. The entire expedition, 129 men, including Franklin, was lost. Mm. Now, a little kind of interesting fact, too. There were a lot of explorations that went to trying to find out what happened to this expedition, right? There's a lot of unanswered questions. They're like, what's going on? Our men are missing. We need to find out what happened. And in April of 1859, two messages were found while searching for the wreckage. The second message, which was dated the 25th of April, 1848, it reported that the Erubus and Terror had been trapped in the ice for a year and a half and that the crew had abandoned the ships on the 22nd of April. 24 officers and crew had died, including Franklin, on the 11th of June in 1847, just two weeks after the date of the first note that was found. Uh, Crossier was commanding the expedition and the 105 uh, survivors plan to start out the next day heading south toward the back river. Now, the remaining men would die of hypothermia, starvation, lead poisoning, and diseases including scurvy, along with the general exposure to the hostile environment whilst lacking adequate clothing and nutrition, and more sinisterly, cannibalism. Some of them died due to cannibalism. So, wow. I love history. This is like this story sounds super interesting. Never heard of it before. Yeah, and, and they're just there explaining was it with a monster. That's great. No kidding, right? Well, and obviously, I'm sure there's going to be some cannibalism. Now, the thing is, there was a novel release called The Terror, uh, I believe, in mid 2000, and it was loosely based on these events. And that I feel like is what this show itself is based off of is the novel, which is in theory based off of the actual true events, hence based on true events that you get in the trailer. Um, but if you read like the summary of the novel itself, it's very much in vain of the show. Like they are being attacked by a predator, but there's all the other stuff that happened in the true story, like cannibalism and people losing their minds, um, which again, you know, people being delusional, that can be a result of hypothermia or the conditions. But on top of that, the fact that either their water or food contain contained high amounts of lead, which led to lead poisoning, which can also make you have incredible delusions. So, mm. oh, so you're saying the monster might not be real. I'm not saying it's interesting as far as the actual story. There's no real monster. Right. Well, yeah. But as far as the show. I'm curious to see if they explore that as if it's like one of those things where they feel like they're being hunted, but maybe realistically they're not. I don't know. Gotcha. But people do die in the show, so I'm assuming something's happening. Cool. So, But season one of The Terror is set to premiere on March 26th, so it's coming out soon. It's coming out in the springtime. So I want to check it out. I think it's going to be really cool. Um, I got one that is coming up as well. It's going to have... J-Law, Jennifer Lawrence in it. She's um, playing a, the show, or sorry, the movie is called Red Sparrow, and she's playing a um, Russian woman named Dominika Egorova, who is recruited um, to Sparrow School, which is a Russian intelligence service, um, and she's forced to use her body as a weapon. Um, so, the, if you watch the trailer, it, she was, it wasn't by choice. She... I think saw something she shouldn't have. Um, she was doing something for her family and kind of got recruited into this, uh, you know, academy um, to be a Russian spy equivalent, I would say. Yeah, Russian spy, assassin. Yeah, she's things, targeting so. the CIA, so. I think it looks cool. I mean, again, it's kind of going in the vein of like Atomic Blonde. You've got this crazy movie that just got announced. Um, which is Proud Mary, which is an interesting film. I'll let you guys look into that yourselves. Oh, yeah. And I've seen... Take what you will I've from that. I've seen trailers. Yeah, we got a lot of 
badass women, I think. Yeah. Coming off of the uh, John Wick era, and again, John Wick's no original story either, but coming off of that, now you got these badass female assassin movies coming out. So Atomic Blonde was really sweet too. Oh, I loved Atomic Blonde, and I loved... um, the actress in it. I'm bad with names. Well, who's the main? Charlie Theron. Yes, beautiful. So, yeah. I don't really buy Jennifer as like mm, super hardcore badass. I don't know. We'll see if she. What pulls Hunger it off. Games didn't do it for you? You're no. like, eh, you're Hunger Games, but <laughs> not not Red Sparrow. Well, yeah, because that was like kids fighting each other basically, and now. True. This takes a, a woman. Yeah. We'll see. So. But that's coming out also in March. March second. Man. So before... A lot of stuff coming out in March. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I have to say, I may check out the Terror TV series before I check out Red Sparrow. No offense, but... I would tend to I think that's more promising for me, too. I don't know if I'll see it in theaters, but... We'll see. Oh, man. (laughs) Threw that out there. We'll see what reviews it gets, you know? And maybe there'll be more trailers, too, as it gets closer to the date. All right. So we got one more trailer. Um, We got a move... No, it's a show. Again, with the... I can't tell. I thought it was a movie. Alex Inc., um, which is a show that's coming up on ABC. This show is actually based on Alex Blumberg's successful podcast startup. And it's about him just as like a father and a husband kind trying to start this podcast um, and start his own company. And he quickly discovers it's going to be a lot harder than he thought. Um, and it's, I, it's a comedy and also it feels kind of... Like, you're rooting for him to kind of get this company started. I don't Coming of age, kind of? I have the feeling I got yeah. from the trailer. It's definitely, it's you get an underdog feeling. I yeah, think, yeah, for like, sure. I don't know if this is going to work out for you, bro. I want it to, but I don't know if it's going to. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think it's funny. I mean, here we are talking about a, a show about some guy trying to start a podcast, quitting his job. And here we are talking about this on a podcast so i think it's definitely at least something that's relatable to us but also i think this generation i think there's i you know it's something that even kevin smith has always said he's like if you feel like there's something you want to talk about like just do a podcast if you want like just start it up because it's not entirely hard i think nowadays it's not too difficult i mean here getting into i guess we can talk about us a little bit here in relation to this is you know you're in georgia i'm in california right now yet we're still able to do the show together um you know we do audio via skype you know so we can hear each other then we record through audacity for our you know our, our actual voices but the thing is like all really that's needed is a decent laptop and then Audacity's free software that that's what we use. Again, you could use anything you want. Um, and then I use Adobe Audition to actually cut the stuff. So again, it's not that expensive. A good microphone, like an entry level microphone costs you about 50 to 100 bucks. So I think it's definitely something that's obtainable. Now, whether or not it's successful, that takes a lot of hard work. Anyone can do a podcast, yeah. whether it's going to be successful. That, But it's super inspiring Anyone can do it. Like, um, in the story, this guy's in his late 30s, and he just decides, mm-hmm. you know, he wants to, like, take this jump and do something he's passionate about, and that's super inspirational. I think that's a theme of our generation, just kind of taking the reins and doing what we want. Because um, I, like, our parents, you know, I think it was more like, get a steady job, get married, have kids, you know, nine to five, all settle down kind of thing. But our generation's kind of like, nope, forget that. We're going to do what we actually want to do. Yeah, and try and make money in the process. Right, so, that's the trick. I, a great scene from that trailer, though, which I absolutely loved, is the the pure enthusiasm and like want to do the podcast that you get from Zach Brass portrayal <laughs> yes. as Alex because there's a scene in there and the scene I'm referencing is he's like crawls into bed with this like super nice microphone he's got his headsets like it's like he brought his studio into bed with him and he's like look guys I can't even wait I'm just so excited and he's talking to, into the podcast like it's so great to not have anyone that you know can tell me what to do and everything and it's just I'm so excited and then as he's saying this his wife smacks him in the face with a pillow and says like <laughs> you know basically to stop it and then he goes okay maybe that person but aside from that so it's just kind of funny yeah it's, it's cute it it looks like it's going to be a good show we are going to take a quick commercial break but when we get back we will be joined by ann nicotin ann is an award-winning composer for film and television and recently completed the score for american animals starring emmy winner ann dowd and is premiering at the 2018 sundance film festival 
and also scored Bart Layton's BAFTA winner, The Imposter, the Sundance Audience Award winner, Dark Horse, and the Netflix true crime series, Captive. Outside of television and film, Anne worked with the London Contemporary Orchestra on the score for Damien Hirst's film, Treasures from the Wreck of the Unbelievable, her upcoming project, Calibre, starring Jack Loudon and Martin McCain, will be released in 2018 so sit tight and we will be back shortly are you like me and want something more than music to listen to during your morning commute maybe you want to start reading more but don't have the time to sit down and open a book well for people on the go there's audible Audible offers over 180,000 audiobooks to listen to on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I personally love listening to a book while I'm in the studio. I get to catch up on my books and be productive at the same time. This week, Audible is giving Film Revere podcast listeners a slam and deal. Go to audibletrial.com slash frpodcast for a free 30-day trial and more importantly, get a free audiobook on us. That's audibletrial.com slash frpodcast. Thanks again to Audible for their support and thank you listeners. Now back to the show. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad we're able to get you on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So I would love to start by asking just what exactly got you interested in pursuing a musical career in the film and television industry? Well, um, like most composers probably tell you, uh, I've been writing music since I was a little kid. Uh, um, I've always really been into music. My dad had an old tape recorder that I'd sing into as a little kid and I'd try and notate my little compositions before I even knew how to read music. And then in um, high school, I spent a lot of time in my bedroom with my guitar and keyboard. And I I guess I secretly wanted to be Susie Sue from (laughs) Susie and the Banshees. I really wanted to be in a band. (laughs) Um, But yeah, there were, there was some questionable high school bands at the time that I was in. Um, And then I went on to study composition at McGill University in Canada where there was a strong avant-garde scene. And as much as I loved absorbing that world, I really craved writing music for film. So um, I found a course at the Royal College of Music in London. It was a music for screen course. So I moved to London and I did that. That's awesome. It's great to hear that Like this has been something going for you since a child. Not many people really get to follow that dream all the way through and then make a living as well as you have doing that dream. I think about that all the time. I'm really, really lucky. And when I first told my parents I really wanted to pursue music seriously, I mean, they did go a bit white (laughs) with fear. Um, And it did take a long time to to land that first job. But I think... um, they're quite relieved now. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm very lucky. So I, another question, I guess, going back to your childhood, was there like a specific movie that really set you on the path to becoming a film and television composer? Um, there was actually, um, and I, I will never forget it. I went to the cinema when I was about 17 and I watched a film called The Piano, directed by Jane Campion. Um, and the music was by Michael Nyman, who I didn't know about at the time. And I'd never really paid attention to film music before, but with this film, my ears pricked up and I was completely immersed in the score. And um, I discovered, you know, that it was Michael Nyman who wrote the music. And I just thought, this is amazing. That's what I want to do. So, yeah, that was a kind of a light bulb moment for me. That's so awesome. I feel like just about anyone in any role in the film or television industry have that specific show or film that really kind of spearheaded their interest in it. So it's kind of interesting to always hear that from people. So having worked in the industry for now nearly 15 years, you've really been able to display your talent as a composer. A series most of our audience would have likely seen many times over would be Locked Up Abroad. What was it like working on a television documentary series such as Locked Up Abroad? Um, Well, Locked Up Abroad seems like an age ago. That was one of my first jobs. Um, I got it through a composer friend of mine who was much more established than me. And um, he knew that they were looking for another composer because they just had to let one go. So they were desperate to fill the position. So I sent off my demo and I got a call the next day um, asking me to come in and start working on on the show. Um, So I was completely inexperienced and I'm not sure I would have actually got the job had 
had they not been so desperate to find someone. But um, but no, it was great. I mean, I I was really nervous um, when I started the first episode. It was forty minutes of wall to wall high octane music, and um, I, I felt like I was clinging on by the skin of my teeth. But I got through it. I had a lovely director, thankfully, on that episode. And then I ended up doing uh, many, many more years worth of series. And, yeah, it was great fun. Because, like, you always wonder, right, when people have these big careers, it's like, were they nervous at first or were they just, like, naturals? And, again, like, it's not that you're, you know, not good at what you do. It's just, like, there's always that bit of, you know, nerves, I think, on the first one. So it's interesting to hear you actually speak about that. Yeah, I think I don't think nerves ever go away. I mean, because you're hopefully always challenging yourself with new documentaries and new genres and new styles, new directors. So there's always um, a little bit of nervousness with with most jobs. But yeah, definitely the first jobs are the worst. (laughs) (laughs) So again, having this been one of your first roles, you know, like in a TV show, what was, I guess, was there any difference now that you've worked in film and other feature documentaries? Was there any difference working on a TV series like this versus, you know, those other mediums? Um, Definitely. I mean, prior to that, I'd only ever worked on short films and um, a nature documentary for BBC and the BBC tend to be very generous with their post-production schedules so you have quite a lot of time to to write music um for them for at least in nature um Mm. so this was a very different bag it was a very quick turnaround I was working across many episodes at the same time each with a different director each with their own demands and vision um so the schedule was nerve-wracking there wasn't much time for eating and sleeping, um, but it was great fun. But yeah, definitely schedule was an element. Yeah, television can be like that, unfortunately. Yeah, so yeah. Very quick pace, but I, I guess it's a way of getting a lot of experience in a very short amount of time, though, because you're working on so many different you know, episodes with different directors. It gives you a lot of experience, I think. It does, and I think this series in particular really helped me to branch out because every episode had a different director and then they would go on to to make other documentaries or dramas and they tended to call me back so sort of take me with them so um that really helped the tree to branch if that makes any sense yeah it makes perfect sense so another project of yours that most will recognize is the BAFTA award-winning documentary, The Imposter, the story of a young man in Spain who claims to a grieving Texas family that he is their 16-year-old son who's been missing for three years. Mm. What was it like scoring a documentary with such a dark subject matter? Well, um, I really loved working on The Imposter. And when Bart Layton, the, the director, first told me the story, um, it absolutely blew my mind. And, of course, you never forget that there's a missing child um, and the underlying threat is a, is a very tragic event. But the focus of this film is more on the young French man who's able to convince the family and all the officials that he is their missing son. And so to capture this man in his actions through music and to be able to score such a beautifully crafted film um, by Bart was really exciting for me and a real joy. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 definitely one of those things where I feel like half of the job not necessarily was done. But I mean, the story alone is just so creepy when you really think about it. I mean, it's very unnerving. I remember seeing it myself and then having seen that you worked on, I was like, oh, my gosh, because like the music does stand out like it really does help sell this. I don't know. It's just like the like, again, unnerving feeling throughout the entire film, because like you had mentioned, there's that underlying fact that there's still a missing child. Like they didn't find him. We know that. So yeah, exactly. Were there any challenges that you faced in making that film? Um, There were many challenges, not just in music, but in the edit as well. It was such a complex story um, and it was a complicated way of telling it because it was a a real hybrid genre. Um, So it was in the edit for a long time and music had to keep evolving as the edit was evolving. So in terms of schedule, it was pretty grueling um, as I was on board from the very beginning. And my music was constantly needing changes to adapt to the changing edit. So um. So in terms of the hybrid genre, it was definitely a documentary, but it played out like a drama with Mm. a story that was larger than life. So I had to make sure that the music was able to help transition the film in and out of Doc World 
seamlessly without jarring the audience in and out of it. And um, so, so we decided I would score it like a drama, but we didn't want it to be too overbearing. It still needed to feel like a documentary. So that was one of the challenges. Definitely an interesting balance to have to explore. So. Yeah. So shortly after The Imposter and you wrapped on Locked Up Abroad, you would go on to score the Sundance Audience Award winner Dark Horse, which was a documentary film focused on the true story of a group of friends from a working men's club who decided to breed themselves a racehorse. What mm-hmm. drew you to this particular film? Um, well, like The Imposter, I found it to be an incredible story. Um, I was just drawn to the story. And although it was very, very different to The Imposter, uh, there would be humor this time. I was sort of up for the challenge <laughs> of this, uh, yeah, something different for me. Definitely. Yeah. What was one of the most rewarding moments to come out of working on Dark Horse? Um, I guess it was writing a score in a completely different style to what I was used to. I was work- used to working on um, series like Locked Up Abroad and and The Impostor, all very dark uh, programs and, and films. So this one was much lighter in style. And it was quite a folksy and organic score. And I really loved hearing musicians play it live in the studio. Um, and then seeing it on the big screen for the first time was, was a real buzz because I was able to absorb the film just to, as a film, you know, and, um, and then of course it won the audience award at Sundance. So that was really rewarding. Exactly. Yeah. Now a review that I particularly liked of the film from Stephanie Mary of the Washington Post, she said, dark horse is earnest, sweet, and told with sentimentality featuring shots of horses frolicking in the fields set against beautiful string music by Anne Nicotin. Surprisingly, the effect isn't melodramatic or overbearing, but disarming and endearing. Had you heard this review before? I have actually. Um, the producer sent it to me, and I thought it was a very flattering review, and it seemed to sum up what we set out to do, which was great, um, because the film could have been made in such a, a sort of saccharine way, um, but Louise Osmond, the director, pitched it perfectly, and I don't think it was saccharine at all. Um, it was a story about these tough Welsh villagers with a strong sense of wit and determination who set out to breed this incredible racehorse um, and to conquer horse racing, which has always been dominated by the privileged in society. Um, so at the same time, they've got these enormous hearts, and the film shows a very beautiful, sensitive connection between humans and animals. So I wanted the, the music to be passionate and emotional and sensitive and, and humorous where it needed to be, but I also wanted to, to carry strength. So, um, so we tried to steer clear of anything too sweet or sentimental. So, I love yeah. that, yeah. And in hearing you describe it, you can clearly tell that you had a genuine understanding of what the director was looking for in the film, what they're trying to convey. And I think that definitely is probably why you've had such a good career as a composer, because you can understand what they're looking for and then bring that out in the music as well. Well, yeah, it's, it's important to, to collaborate on that level, um, to keep having meetings and keep talking and uh, keep discussing the work that you show them. Yeah. So something else I was wondering also in speaking about Dark Horse was, again, it premiered at Sundance, won the audience award. So my question is, did you get a chance to go to Sundance when the film premiered? Do you know, I've never been to Sundance. Um, (laughs) When The Imposter was there, uh, I had just given birth to my first daughter. So I I was pregnant all through The Imposter. And then um, and then she arrived on the the day of the dub. (laughs) So so I can. And then when Dark Horse was there, I had my second daughter. So um, so I haven't been. But I don't plan on having any more children. So I'm going to Sundance this year. (laughs) There we go. Okay, awesome. Perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, at least it's good reasons, right? Yeah, so, they were good reasons. They were fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you'll ever tell them that when they get older. Like, you know, my first yeah. two films, you know, which one, by the way, I might add. I didn't yeah. get to go see it Sundance. So well, When they're giving me grief as teenagers, I'll yeah. <laughs> explain the sacrifice I made. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's awesome. So another and, and speaking on this, because you kind of touched on this before working on Dark Horse, you'd worked on a lot of 
relatively darker projects, having worked on Seconds from Disaster, Paranormal Witness, uh, The Hunt for the Boston Bombers, and more recently now uh, would be the acclaimed true crime series Captive on Netflix. Would you say that there's still something that draws you towards these projects? Um, yes, I have to say I'm drawn to dark movies and dark scores for some reason. And they also seem to find me because I guess that's what I kind of get known for. Um, for me, just writing darker music is much more satisfying and easier <laughs> than humor, definitely. Um, I can't really put my finger why I'm drawn to this. I just, I've just always loved dark music. Um, music that would make you sort of sit in your bedroom and feel sorry for yourself when you're a teenager. And um, <laughs> so I grew up listening to bands such as The Cure and Joy Division and Susie and the Banshees. And um, so that was definitely not happy music. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. But definitely explains at least your interest in the darker yeah. types of music, though. Yeah, carried so. on into adult life. So. Exactly. Well, and so you had mentioned that you're going to Sundance this year and something that's really exciting for you and something I definitely want to mention to listeners is the reason why. So you just recently finished American Animals, which is premiering at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. Were you surprised by that news that it got nominated? Um, I have to say I wasn't too surprised, but I was very relieved and very, very excited. Um, I just I think I always had faith that hopefully it would get in. Um I just think ever since The Imposter, Bart Layton, who's the director of American Animals as well, has been on the radar as he's such a talented and innovative director. So, yeah, of course, there was always a chance it wasn't going to get in, but I was keeping the faith. And yeah, very excited to hear. And and it's such an interesting film too. And I, for the listeners, it's it features Emmy Award winner Anne Dowd, and it's based on the true story of four men who attempt one of the most audacious art heists in U.S. history. So it's definitely I. Th- I mean, I'm excited for the film, realistically. I know that there's not too much out there as far as like a trailer or anything like that, which tends to happen when you have films that go into the festival circuit, but I do want to see it. I have to say, I love the film. As soon as I read the script, I just said, but I have to do this. <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, it's great. I, I'm I'm really hoping the audience take take to it as well. And speaking of Bart, what was it like working with him for a second time? Um, it was great to be back on board with Bart, um, especially knowing that something exciting was about to happen because I really loved the script and I, I thought it was going to be very exciting putting it all together. Um, he was able to take many of his team from The Imposter, so it was like a little reunion, which was really nice. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and Bart is a really great director to work with. He's intensely focused on detail and he won't let anything go. Um, he likes to experiment and exhaust all possibilities before dismissing anything um, that doesn't work. So at times it can be exhausting, <laughs> a little bit psychologically torturous. <laughs> but he's so gracious um, in his demands and how he asks for things that that you, you know you kind of forgive him for that because he's he's also a brilliant filmmaker with a very strong vision. So I completely respect it. Um, and actually, I have to admit that. I'd say 95% of the time that he was asking for changes, he was completely right to ask as much as I didn't want to admit it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's 5% of the time I'd say that I was right, but I will never win a battle with Bart. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, I mean, it's a different part of your career at this point, you know, yeah. the imposter, not that you were, you know, and in, incredibly new, but it was still like earlier on in your career. And then now having worked on a lot of other shows, I think it's a little bit different now with getting, you know, the requests for changes. But again, there's that, you know, working balance between the director and the composer to make sure that the film turns out the best way possible. So Absolutely. And I think I feel for him that we have a mutual respect there. So um, although it's demanding, I, I don't mind it because I know that it's ultimately for the greater good of the film. Yeah. So touching on something maybe just more generic as opposed to just a film specific question, how do you find the process of working with filmmakers, maybe outside of Bart Layton? Um, and do you ever at times feel like your work is being compromised by the needs of the film or the filmmaker? 
that's a really interesting question. I mean, every director is different, so there's always a different experience. Some are um, very detailed in, in, in their requests and others kind of let you just get on with it, which is nice um, too. Um, and I, I'm not sure about the word um, compromise because I suppose the job of the composer is to work to the brief of the director. So maybe True. compromise is not the right word. Um, I suppose you have to be flexible as an artist and you can't be precious if you sign up for this kind of job. And if you are precious about your art, then it's probably best to be an independent artist and, and pursue that road. Um, having said that, uh, there are times when you do feel like you're doing the best you can and this is the music that you really feel fits the brief and they may just say, no, this isn't working. And it is really um, hard to go back when you do feel it is working. Um, there can be moments where you feel it's soul-destroying. Um, and also, you know, it's not just the director. You've also got the execs uh, to contend with and then the broadcaster themselves. So mm -hmm. I've been in a situation where I've written something, um, a score. We finished the score, we finished the edit, and everyone's been happy, the director, the editor, the execs. And then it's gone to the broadcaster and they've just said, no, we want it recut and we want new music. And you end up writing just the same old sort of cheap and nasty stuff <laughs> that you hear all the time. Yeah. And so that's all destroying. And then and I suppose another um, part can be um, temp music. That's a, that's a bit of a bugbear with composers. There's always temp music on things, which mm. is fine. It gives an idea of what the director wants. But sometimes you're asked to get too close to the temp music. And, um, well, artistically, it's not really fun. And secondly, it can be an issue of copyright. So if you feel like you are getting too close, you just have to say no, because ultimately the composer is re responsible for that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And it's not something I feel like too many people that are just, you know, your normal moviegoers or people who just watch television think of. But temp music can be one of those things where it just gets into the mind of a director and they're like but this is how i heard this and i need you to get as close as legally possible to this and then it's like okay you're again like you mentioned walking that fine wire of you know not getting into copyright issues but then also dealing with the fact that like well this is no longer my input into this because now i'm just mirroring another artist's work so. exactly you just feel like a bit of a chimp and you you know who's who's sitting at the controls but not really having any input so you're absolutely right yeah so i guess on in areas where this isn't a problem how would you best say that you not necessarily impose but you know instill your creativity on a film or a television series when doing the score um i think it's probably best to start as early on as possible so before that before they put the guide music in, um, or at least they can have a little bit of guide music, but they don't fill the whole film with it. So if you can start early on and just start sketching ideas, um, that's always the best way to win them over. Um, so you've got to offer ideas that satisfy their general brief, but also give them something that you feel will work and that speaks from from you and your, your own artistic um, soul. So um, I suppose you can... You should try and give them what they didn't know they wanted. Um, exactly. And so if you start experimenting early on, um, there's just there's time, you know, there's time for experimentation, which is always fun. Definitely. So in order to close this interview, I really want to touch on something. And I'm sure the listeners are just as interested as I am on this is what upcoming projects do you have in store for 2018 outside of American Animals at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival? Um, well, unsurprisingly, I've been uh, commissioned to do two true, true crime series for Netflix. So, <laughs> um, one's an eight-part series that I can't say too much about at the stage. It's early days. Um, and the other one is a six-part series where I'm collaborating with my composer and friend, Rob Manning, who um, we, we do a lot of work together. So, uh, they'll be fun. Yeah, so and it's something that I again, you know, listeners of the show will know that especially you know moving forward now with me and, and Kate or Katie and I, uh, we're huge true crime fans, and we've also touched on that in the podcast. Is it's like there is this just genuine fascination I think with true crime now 
in the way that it's become so popular. Again, you just mentioned that you're commissioned to do two true crime series with Netflix, which a uh, show that I'm super obsessed with right now is a confession tapes, which is also on Netflix. Um, but I mean, what is your take on that? Do you think you have an idea as to why maybe, and again, it might be too deep of a question and we're not probably really qualified, but I'm curious, why do you think there might be like such an in- uptake in interest in true crime? I mean, we've, we've seen the imposter and, you know, some people came out of that thinking it was a drama and that something like that couldn't possibly happen in real life. Um, and, and we've seen, you know, the, the, the jinx, which was just unbelievable, <laughs> Where, uh, you know, it's, it, I think, it, I think these true stories, um, it's just mind boggling that they are actually true. We're so used to watching, um, thrillers as dramas, you know, the Scandinavian noir is very popular, but they're not mm. true. Um, so the, having the added element of them being true stories is something that people are completely fascinated with. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's way more well put than I think we've ever been able to put on the show. Oh, we gosh. always <laughs> are trying to pick at it and be like, why? Why is it so popular? I mean, because we're entranced just as much as, you know, everyone else is. I mean, um, but it's just, yeah, it's always something it's interesting to get someone else's take on, especially someone who's worked on so many series like you have. So... Well, thank you so much, Anne, for joining us here on the Film Revere podcast. And obviously, I wish you the best of luck in your career and cannot wait to hear more from you. Thank you very much. It was really nice to be here. All right. We are back from our interview with Anne Nicotin, and I think it's time for us to get into what to watch. So as we talked about on the top of the show, my what to watch is definitely going to be Sons of Anarchy, which you can catch on Netflix or Amazon Prime. So no excuse. You can check it out. The show, if you've been under a rock for the past 10 years and didn't hear about Sons of Anarchy, the show follows the lives of a close-knit outlaw motorcycle club operating in Charming, a fictional town set in California's Central Valley. The show stars Charlie Hunnam, who is boomed with success since the show as an actor in feature films. Uh, It stars him as Jackson Jax Teller, who's initially the vice president in the show, who begins questioning the club and himself. Brotherhood, loyalty, and redemption are constant themes. It's a phenomenal show, often referred to as Hamlet on motorcycles. (laughs) And if you're a ratings person, you want to know what the reviews are like, and hey, maybe you know Sons of Anarchy didn't really get that good a review, so I don't want to watch it. Well, you got no excuse. (laughs) You got none. Because it received... I know, right? I love this show. Are you going to rewatch it? Oh, sorry. I've already started. I've already started, people. I'm, I'm coming up on the end of season one, so I'm already doing that um but it received excellent ratings and in fact the series as an average has a 90 percent fresh on rotten tomatoes 90 percent across all seasons of the show wow which is insane yeah so i think it's one of those underrated shows where people are just like it's a bunch of old guys on motorcycles i'm not interested that's literally a quote from my cousin thomas who is now a diehard sons of anarchy fan by the way because he took a chance people that's all i want people take a chance so I think you should check it out. That's my what to watch. All right. Um, Mine is also, it's not a recent show, but it's like one of my top favorite shows um, on Netflix. It's called The OA. um, And it's, Britt Marling is the writer, co-writer, co-director. Like she stars as the main actress in it. Um, And it's kind of hard to explain it's kind of like another, if you watch Dark Guys, it's similar to that and kind of like mystery kind of thriller. Um, it's about a woman who went missing and then she comes back to her family. When she went missing, she was blind and her family hasn't seen her for seven years and then she just shows up again. Um, and she starts telling her story from the beginning, from her childhood, what happened to like these group of people um, in her neighborhood and... It's really interesting. It's <laughs> without going into it too much, it's kind of hard to explain, but I would check it out. Um, I love Britt Marling. She's super inspirational to me as a creator. Um, it's funny, I read this about her. One summer, she was a kid at camp in Wisconsin, 
and she was telling ghost stories late at night to girls in her cabin. Um, and at first, everyone loved the stories. But after a few nights, uh, <laughs> it was quoted, I think things were just percolating in everyone's imaginations, said Marling. The camp called her parents and said they had to pick her up. Her ghost stories were freaking people out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, dude, I love that If so that's much. not a sign that you should, you know, become a writer and creator, I don't know what is. Um, and she was quoted about her new show saying... I would have thought the OA would be more of an outlier. It's pretty far out in its form, said Marling, but the audience seems very ready for that. They want to be surprised, and they want to feel new emotions that they can't find names for. Can't find names for. I feel like mm. those girls in that cabin were like, I'm feeling fear <laughs> that I don't have a name for. Yeah, Marling is like, <laughs> you don't really know. She's kind of like out there, and they're like, um, no, you're freaking me out. <laughs> oh, God, I love that so much. It's so great. Yeah, I definitely will check that out. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that my dad's a huge fan of the show himself. And he's like, dude, you need to check that out. He saw it on when we were on vacation in Michigan uh, a while ago. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, dude, you need to. He's like, I'm watching all of it right now. He binged, like, I think the entire oh, series yeah. you on can't, his tablet. You can't not binge it because it's one of those shows that lives you leaves you on a cliffhanger at the end of episodes. So you're like, all right, mm-hmm. into the next one. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Well, that's the end of episode six of the Film Revere podcast. Be sure to show your support for the FR podcast by leaving a review on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you happen to listen to the show. Another great way to show your support is by getting a free audiobook from Audible by going to audibletrial.com slash frpodcast. If you enjoy the show and would like to ask a question for the podcast, feel free to write us at filmrevered at gmail.com. Lastly, we have Walking Dead actor Jeremy Palco on the show next week. More info to come later. Thanks again from all of us here at Film Revered. Have a great week.